especially from Mr. Bill's preparation and how he has served us very well. And, and just, uh, I love these truths. I love an opportunity to discuss them again. And, and for all of us, wherever we are in, in the journey of, of discovery here, just to be furthered in our, in our understanding and our awareness of, of God's work of salvation. So this has been uh, very beneficial and I hope it's been uh, for you as well. You know, my love of theology um, grew about the same time as I was beginning to understand more of Reformed theology and just came to encounter this portrait of a God who was bigger than me, which, you know, any God is obviously bigger than me, but this God is really big and really in charge of everything that happens in all of the universe and in the course of our lives. And therefore, a a source of confidence and hope in the midst of life, in the midst of the fallen realities and the suffering uh, that we experience to know that, that this is a God who is not taken by surprise by any of this, who's not confronted by uh, these realities, but who is reigning and in charge over them, and, and a God of, of grace that, that really saves and that overcomes our resistance and, and determines to have us as his people and, and ensure that everything is, is accomplished uh, that needs to happen in order for us to be saved in the end and for all eternity. And so uh, God just, grace became more and more amazing to me. God became larger and larger in my eyes. And therefore, uh, worship became uh, more meaningful for me as I began to learn more about these truths. And, and that's our hope that you would experience that as well. You know, we got a question from someone that asked, why even study this? You know, what, 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 re- what difference really does it make? Well, first of all, as God's people, I I would hope that if this really is the way that God is, and this really is how he accomplishes our salvation, that we would want to know that. I mean, don't we want to know the real God as he really is and not just how we think he is? Uh, That's what salvation is all about. It's about bringing us to God, bringing us to a a knowledge and relationship with him. And so we we, we want to grow in our understanding of what he is like and, and how his purposes are accomplished in in this world and and for our lives. But, you know, Bill's done a great job of just drawing out different implications along the way of of how these truths should should produce humility in us because uh, we we just recognize that if salvation is all of grace and and we are uh, dead in our sin and unresponsive to God unless he moves upon us and resurrects us to life, then we know we really didn't do anything to contribute to this. None of the glory of salvation can go to us. It goes to God alone. And so that should, that should rescue us either from uh, pride in, in the fact that we turned and, and we were aware and we recognized something that was spiritually true. And it should also uh, rec- uh, rescue us from uh, fear and anxiety that in the end, this is going to depend on us, that either in our own lives or in the lives of our loved ones, we got to keep our act together and then we, we've got to ensure that everything happens in the right way. And it ultimately depends on us for our own salvation and, and those that we love. And these truths, they, they rescue us uh, from thinking in that way. And so there's just uh, much good and much benefit from uh, learning about them and, and returning to them and, and, and bringing them into our worship and, and devotion to the Lord. But that being said, we, we don't want to convey the thought that, hey, you know, these are easy. 
and and everybody accepts these truths easily and and there's there's you know no more clarity that needs to take place and if you're at this point you're not understanding and 100 percent agreeing there's probably something wrong with you right we, we do not want to communicate that at all because i think anyone who has come to recognize these truths can say yeah, that was a process, and that was a that was a, a process of of study, and it was a process of well, what about this, and raising questions, and encountering resistance, and 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 just talking this out, and and just prayerful meditation on the Word of God as as these realities were were deepened in in our understanding and our awareness. And so, you know, wherever you are in in your journey, we we, we hope this study has been helpful to deposit and maybe clarify some of these truths. And if you're feeling like, you know what, I, I see this and I see some of, 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 of this in, in God's word and I'm just not 100% sure about this yet, we, you know, don't feel like there's some sort of problem. You're just where you are in, in God's development of, of, of having you understand his, his word. And so uh, recognizing that, our hope this week and, and next is to address some of the difficulties that might come up as, as you talk about the doctrines of grace. Um, and there are, there are real difficulties and, and real mysteries uh, to confront. And, and so our hope is to, to relieve some of the tension uh, today and, and next week, but we, we don't plan on removing the mystery altogether, and nor would we want to. Because if, if God were a God that we can fully understand, you know what he wouldn't be? God. And that's not the kind of God that, that we want. At the same time, we want to know everything that he has revealed and made, made known to us. And so that's why we take the time to study this. So uh, this week we'll talk about what you might call problem uh, passages uh, for the doctrines of grace. And, and next week we'll talk about, you know, you could call it problem ideas and just uh, the different related concepts and questions that have come up. Things like, well, what about free will? You know, should we be hostile to that concept? Do we need to have an accurate definition of what do we mean by free will? How does that come into play with, with all this? Um, I know there have been several questions about what are the implications of uh, God's sovereignty and things like election and his purpose to save some. What does that imply about the fall? And was that part of God's plan? And, and what does that you know, what kind of question does that raise about God that this is the, this is the world that he would plan for in, in which, in the end, there are going to be people in hell. And he knew that, and that was part of his plan as well. And so we'll, we'll seek to address uh, some of those things. And please continue. Several of you have been sending in questions along the way, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to maybe pull some of those together in different categories and address it. And, and we might have some opportunity for some live Q&A uh, next week. As well. So, but this morning we're going to talk about some different passages that maybe have been on your mind or you've encountered by somebody raising, well, what about this? And, well, doesn't, doesn't the Bible also say this? And so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of those today. And, and just to be clear, we are not here to explain away these passages, right? We are here to listen carefully to what God's Word has to say. We want to listen carefully, which means we want to read it carefully and understand what exactly it's, it's communicating. You know, sometimes people will ask this when you when, when somebody will raise a verse and they'll quote a verse and you'll want to take further look at that and kind of, well, well, have you considered that it might not mean exactly what you think it means? Sometimes people respond by, well, I thought God's Word is clear. 
you know, that was, that's actually one of the principles of the Reformation is the, the clarity of God's Word and that you don't, you don't need some professional person with a collar in order to understand what it says. Uh, but what the, the Reformers were teaching with that was not that everything in the Bible is equally clear and doesn't require any study or help uh, in order to understand it, but the things that we need to know are clear enough that even if you're uneducated, you can understand it. That, that, that's the point about the clarity of Scripture. And here, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, puts it like this. It says, not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. Now, in case that quote wasn't clear, uh, what they're saying is this, is that uh, anybody, no matter who they are, can read the Bible in one place or another, just reading like you would read any other book, come to understand the gospel as the Spirit enables them to do so. But that doesn't mean we don't need things like study helps and commentaries and insight from people who know how the biblical languages work and things like that to help us understand some parts of the Bible that aren't as clear. And so here are some informing principles, just basic principles for interpretation that we'll seek to use this morning, and that we should take this in whenever we're reading anything in the Bible. And the first is that we should interpret passages in their context, right? What is, what's going on here? What, what is the biblical author trying to communicate at this point? What is he seeking to say? And, and, and am I reading this verse in light of that context? Or if I just isolated this verse by itself, and I don't even know, you know what's going on around it, but I'm just quoting it by itself. You know, there's this, this classic saying that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Which is, you know, it's just saying that if you, if you pull a verse out by itself, chances are you're going to be prone to misuse it. And some of the verses we're going to look at today, honestly, they've been used as proof text. And often they've been used by people who if you say, okay, what does the verse before and after it say? They might not know because they, they, they might not have read it in context as much as this. They've, they've quoted bits and pieces of it. So we want to be careful to do that. Second principle is that we want to interpret God's word consistently. And, and the reason why we do that is because God always tells the truth. And because everything in the Bible is God's word, everything in the Bible will agree. You know, there, there won't be any contradictions in Scripture because God never lies. And so what that means is if we're reading a, a text and it seems to be saying something that contradicts what a lot of other clear passages say, we're probably misreading that passage. And we want to go back and read it carefully um, in, in light of what is clear for us. And so we always interpret God's word consistently. And so one way or the other, you know, however we understand the verses we're going to look at today, we have to deal with everything that you know, Bill has been addressing in this class. That doesn't all go away. And, and that, I think that's been pretty, pretty clear. And so how we read these verses, it, it's going to agree. It's going to uh, conform with um, everything else that we've encountered in God's Word. So this morning, we are going to look at a few uh, categories of verses. Uh, obviously, we're not addressing anything that could come up. And uh, you are always free. Uh, send me an email or, or talk to one of us if you want uh, more clarity on a different verse. But uh, just introducing some different groups of passages and, and how you read these uh, is, is pretty similar to how you read 
anything else that would come up in these, in these categories. So uh, first are verses that use the language of all or any and, and, and seem to indicate that God's saving actions extend to everyone, right? So First uh, Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4 say this, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? So just think for a moment with me. What, what, do, you, what do you hear? What's a problem there that might exist with some of the things that we've already looked at in this class? Well, you know, who desires all people to be saved? It's often read in a way that denies unconditional election because if God desires everyone to be saved, then God's saving purpose is not restricted only to the elect. He, he wants to see everyone saved. And so he's, he's done everything. He's done everything in his part to save them, but only those who respond of their free will will be saved in the end. And, and implicit in, in this understanding is that God can will and purpose for something to take place and yet be frustrated in the end due to a failure on man's part. And so this is normally described as, as God wanting to redeem everyone, but wanting to redeem them in such a way that their free will is not disturbed. And so in the end, only some people are going to be saved, but God on his part, he wants everyone to be saved, and he's done everything that needs to happen in order for everyone to be saved. Now, uh, before we look further at this text, remember this is written by the Apostle Paul, and this is the same Apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and all the other passages we've, we've already encountered. So he's not going to say something here that contradicts what we've, we've seen in those texts as well. Uh, but when verse 4 is read in isolation from the surrounding passage, it, it certainly sounds persuasive. You know, how can you say that God has elected some for salvation when 1 Timothy 2.4 says he desires all to be saved? But the problem with this interpretation is that it assumes something about the word all here, that if you just read the context, it's not demonstrated there. What, what does the word all mean in this text? Well, well, the assumption is that all means every single person in the world. You know, sometimes it's said, all means all, and that's all all means. And, uh, you know, that's, that's technically true, but all of what? You know, all, all of some sort of uh, group, and that, that group gets specified by the context. You know, if I said, uh, is everyone here this morning? Are we all here? Uh, I obviously don't mean, you know, all seven billion people on the planet. And I certainly don't mean like koala bears and fungus spores and chipmunks. You know, I'm not referring to everything in existence. So at least, you know, I'm talking about people. But, but if I say, you know, are we all here this morning? I'm probably referring to the class that's, you know, been participating in, in, in this School of the Word study. And so our, our, is everyone here? There, there, there's a reference point. There's a, there's a context that is either implied or it's made clear from other things that are said that help you understand what group is, is being included when you talk about all of this group. Uh, and, and the Bible does this all the time. Um, you know, Luke chapter 2 verse 1 uh, talks about how Caesar had decreed that all of the world should be registered. I don't think he means like the Aztecs and the Chinese and Australians. And it's talking about all of the Roman world. 
and, and that is implied in, in the context. But, but if whenever we see the word all in Scripture, you just take that out and replace it with every single person that has ever lived or ever will live, you'd end up not only with a denial of election, but honestly, you'd end up with universalism. And so even people who insist on a certain meaning of the word all here, they, they don't really do that consistently when it comes to uh, passages like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Right? Is everyone made alive in the end? Is everyone, as 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about here, raised in glory in the end? Made alive in the presence of God for all eternity? Well, the universalist says, hey, all means all, baby. That's all all means here. But uh, obviously, Paul is talking about everyone who is in Christ, who is going to be made alive in the end. Or Colossians 1, 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ. Is everyone going to be reconciled to God? Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, right? All have sinned and are justified. Is everyone justified? Is everyone declared to be righteous? Well, what he's saying there is all have sinned and all are justified in Christ Jesus. All who are the subjects of his redemption are, are justified. So we need to look at the context to discover what Paul's referring to. So let's start, uh, if you want to open up in your Bible to 1 Timothy 2, and we'll look in verse 1. He says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And so here he's, he's telling us to pray for all people. And so, question for you, in order to obey this verse, uh, do you need to pull out a phone book, which I don't know if anybody has a phone book anymore, although there was actually a lady dropping off a phone book at the church the other day, and she was trying to get in the, the building and I didn't want to communicate to her that she's probably wasting her time, but um, pull out Google or whatever you need to do. And uh, do, do you go down the list and pray for every single person in the world by name? Is that, is that what Paul is, is specifying here? Well, he immediately clarifies in verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so we're, we're to pray for all people including kings and all who are in high positions since they have uh, a role in our ability to live a peaceful and God-honoring life. In other words, we, we should not limit our prayers only to individuals who are like us in class or status, but should pray for all kinds of people, even if there are those that we don't particularly like, such as the government or the current presidential candidates. Uh, why? Well, he provides a theological reason in the next verse. Verse 3, this, you know, praying for all kinds of people, including governmental authorities, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so our prayers shouldn't be prejudiced against any class of individuals because the gospel is not prejudiced against any class of individuals. That's Paul's point in verse 4. He, he's not referring to what you might describe as 
all without exception, but all without distinction. And, and that's what that verse in Romans 3, you know, we were, we were talking about a moment ago. That's, that's what it does. It says in, in verse 20, for there is no distinction for all have sinned. And, and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile have equally sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and Jew and Gentile may be equally justified by faith uh, as a gift of, of the grace of God. And this becomes more clear as you continue to move throughout the text. Verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so verse 5 begins with the word for, which, you know, that, that tells you he is, he's grounding his previous statement that the gospel includes people from every class and status and ethnicity. And he says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. There, there's just one message of salvation. There's just one Savior, Jesus. Kings don't have a different Savior than peasants. Jews don't have a different gospel than Gentiles. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all such as these. And then Paul provides uh, more clarity in verse 7. Look, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles by faith and in truth. And so he's saying, for this reason, because of the inclusiveness of the gospel, I'm appointed an apostle for the Gentiles. And so verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. And in verse 6, Jesus is the ransom for all. But verse 2 and verse 7 uh, both define what Paul means by all. All classes of people, both kings and their subjects, and all races of people, Jews and Gentiles. And the Greek scholar William Mounts comments, he says, it would appear that Paul's opponents are teaching an exclusive gospel that offers salvation only to a select few. And this exclusivism is made clear by their practice of praying for only certain people. The theological debate over issues concerning the Christian doctrine of election arising from verse 4 was not the focus of the text in its historical situation. Right? That, that's a matter of context right there. What's going on surrounding this verse? Who is being addressed? What's the historical setting? What is Paul trying to accomplish in communicating this? Within the context of the false teachers in Ephesus, Paul was saying that the church was not to exclude anyone, not even the governing authorities, in verse 2, from the proclamation of the gospel since God's desire was to save all people, possibly from all classes or groups of Humanity, And this is not the only place in, in the letter of 1 Timothy where the word all is used to refer to all kinds. In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul writes that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, you know, that's often misquoted as saying that money itself is, is the root of, of all evil, and that's obviously not true. But is it even true to say that the love of money is the root of all evil? Every instance of disobedience to God, if you trace it back, you'll find there the love of money. Uh, every time we disobey him, well, well, Paul means that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, which is exactly the way that the ESV translates that verse. All right, well, why don't you go ahead and flip over to 2 Peter 3. Uh, this one's often read side by side with 1 Timothy 2. Uh, very similar principles in play here. 
And you read this in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, you can see why that might be a problem text for the doctrines of grace. If God does not will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, then certainly he would not restrict his work of salvation to the elect. After all, this is what he wants. He wants to make sure that no one perishes. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And so wouldn't he determine to save uh, every single person? But again, we need to listen to the context. To whom is is Peter writing? Well, if you start in verse 1, this becomes more clear. Verse 1 This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Which, by the way, apparently that's a part of God's purposes as well. God is storing up something for the destruction of of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Right? So to whom is God patient in this passage? Right? He is patient toward you, beloved. His promise is true toward you. And he's raising the question, well, how do you know this? Well, you know this because he did not will that any of you should perish, but that all of you should come to repentance. And that is why Jesus, that, that, that is why God has delayed the second coming of Christ. And, and, and so Peter's addressing this problem that, that it appears that God has not been faithful to his promise. He says in verse 3 that scoffers are going to come and they're going to taunt believers as they've done throughout the centuries. And they're going to say, okay, where's Jesus? This Jesus that you said he would soon return, which by the way, this, this, you know, this was a problem already in the first century. And think of us, 2,000 years removed from this. Where is he? I guess he just forgot about you. I guess he's not true to his promises. And Peter is saying that these scoffers, they overlook two essential things here. First, the word soon is a different word for an eternal God. Because for him, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. And then the second is that God has a reason for his patience. 
And that reason has to do with his plan of salvation. One day, Jesus is going to come like a thief, but he hasn't returned yet. Why not? Well, maybe so that you and I could be saved. I mean, think about it. If Jesus returned in 1820, then none of us would be saved. Uh, None of us would have been born. Uh, and, And there are some people who will be saved tomorrow that if Jesus returned today, they would have been lost. And so that is why God is patient toward us. But this raises a significant problem for people who interpret all as every person in the world rather than as all of you, God's people. Because if the Father is delaying the return of the Son, waiting for every person in the world to come to repentance, when will Jesus come back? Never, right? He'd be delayed indefinitely since we know that not all will respond to the gospel. And so this text implies that Jesus is waiting for the full salvation of God's particular people. And when his purpose of redemption is complete, he will come like a thief. God has not willed that you and I would perish by his mercy and his undeserved love. He has set his affection on us. And there are others whom we do not yet know that he has determined to save, and this is God's kind patience and faithful promise. Now, that being said, there is a general sense in which God commands and desires the repentance of all people. And and this is just a feature of of normal human language. We, We often use the word desire in different senses. You know, if if I'm going to discipline my children, have to give them a spanking, there's something genuinely that I don't desire to do that. Right? I don't want to do this. At the same time, I want to do it because it's for their good. And so I can communicate to them that I both don't uh, love disciplining them, and at the same time, I do in the sense that this is, this is to help you, this is to serve you in, in, in walking in obedience and in, in the, the path that God, God has for you. And, and so this is true all the time. We, we talk about in, you know, all things being equal, this is what I desire, but given these other considerations, this is what I desire. When you, when you bring more uh, information in play. And so there's, there's a resource uh, on the table there. And if you didn't get a copy of it, I only printed out so many of them. You can just Google that title and it'll come up right away. But it's, a, it's an article by John Piper titled, Are There Two Wills and God? And, 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 you know, sometimes people hear that question and they think that makes God schizophrenic or something strange. But what he's just saying is, another way of asking that is, does the Bible talk about the will of God in different senses? Does it describe God willing things in in different ways? Does it use that term, will, desire, in different different ways? And and, and the reality is, everybody acknowledges this, right? Even, you know, what you might describe as an Arminian who uh, doesn't believe in unconditional election um, still describes God's will and and desires in, in different senses, right? With this verse we just looked at. You know, they, they, they believe that God desires for everyone to be saved. Why, does it, why doesn't he save everyone? Well, he also desires that his justice be met. And he also desires that people come to him of, of you know, their own free will. And so he's not going to overcome that. And so uh, they, they recognize God desires different things in different senses. And so even though God uh, desires for everyone to be saved, in, in another sense, that's not what he's desired because of other considerations. And so we all do this. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live, 
right? All things being equal, God's will and character would have it that everyone would turn and live. But he has also decreed and ensured the salvation of some. And in his righteousness, he has justly left others in their, in their sin. A really uh, interesting place where you see these two senses in which God wills something. In one text is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it says this, uh, talking about Eli's son. If you're familiar with the, the, the context, uh, Eli's sons, they were abusing the offering. They were defrauding people, and they're about to die. Uh, but, but it says this in verse 25, But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why didn't they listen? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That is a striking verse right there. It's saying, even though Eli warned them and called for them to repent, they didn't listen. They refused And their refusal fulfilled the will of God who was planning for them to continue in their disobedience and was planning to put them to death, right? That's what the text says. And that's the reason that it gives for why they didn't respond. Now, in their own hardness of heart, they were responsible for their response, for their resistance. But God did not give to them the grace to repent because it was God's plan to leave them hardened in their sin and put them to death. And so in that sense... Eli's sons, in their hardness of heart, are doing exactly God's will. His will of what he has sovereignly decreed to take place. But look further on in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. What's the implication there? They weren't. Eli's sons and even Eli's own ministry were not fulfilling God's will. They weren't representing what is in God's heart and in God's desires. And so in one sense, God God can say, hey, you're not accomplishing my will. And I'm going to raise somebody up who will accomplish my will. And and at the same time, he can say, and my, my plan and purpose is your very unwillingness. And that is a part of my will as well. And so what this means is, is we can describe God's general kindness and desire and command for everyone everywhere to repent, and he desires good in their lives. And there are also uh, purposes that God has put in place that come to bear on how we describe God's particular plan and desire to save his people. All right, uh, let's see. Let me look at 1 John 2, 2, and then if we have time for the, the other one, we'll do that as well. All right, 1 John 2, verse 2 says this, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right? So, um, if he's saying, Jesus isn't just the propitiation for our sins, but of the whole world. That seems like, that denies particular redemption. Right? That, that doesn't uh, affirm what you might call limited Atonement. John says Jesus is not just a propitiation for our sins, but for the entire world. But there, there are two assumptions that need to be read into the text in order to understand it in this way. And the first is that it must be assumed that the word our in this passage means all believers, and the word world refers to every person in the world, including unbelievers. But that's something that you, you have to show. You can't just take for granted. And the reason why is John in particular 
he uses the, the, the term world in his writings in like 10 different ways. You know, when he says, you shall not love the world or the things of the world. Uh, it, does he mean you shall not love the people in the world? If you, if you read the word world as every single person in the world, then, then he's saying don't love them. But that's not what he's saying there. He's talking about the world system and its opposition to God. That's what we should not love. Or when it says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that, nor that the world through him might be saved. He just used the word world in that like one verse in three different ways. God did not send his son into every single person in the world. No, he's talking about the realm of the world, the realm of creation, in order that they might be condemned, but in order that the world might be saved. Um, so that's, that's one thing that needs to be considered is, is this word world means different things, and the context helps you understand what it's, it's specifying. Another thing that needs to be read into the text is, is this word potential, that Jesus is the potential propitiation of the sins of every person, because certainly Jesus is not the actual propitiation for every person's sins, right? To be a propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. And if Jesus satisfied, if he completely removed God's wrath and opposition for every single person who's ever lived, there is no wrath and opposition for them to ever face. And so again, you'd end up in with universalism. There, there, there's no wrath to be poured out in hell. God is satisfied. Punishment is removed. We are reconciled to God. All that's included in, in the language of propitiation. And so what you have to assume is, well, he just means potentially Jesus died in such a way that he could be the propitiation for anybody who would turn to him, but that's a lot you have to include in there in order to get it to say what you think it says. So this concept of conditionality needs to be assumed. Uh, But John has already supplied for us in, in this letter what he means by us versus the rest, right? Jesus is not, is not just a propitiation for our sins. All right, well, who does he mean by we? Uh, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right. So obviously we there is not... Every believer, we is, is, it's a reference to the community of the eyewitnesses, the believing Jews to whom Jesus came, the lost sheep of Israel. And John is writing to his Gentile audience, and he's proclaiming the message. He's saying, this message is even to you, right? It's, it's also for you. Even though you weren't there, even though you're not Jewish, even though you didn't touch him with your hands and see him with your eyes, even you are a recipient of this good news. And, and, and John is writing to inform them, beginning in chapter 2, uh, that we would not sin, but if we do sin, he says, we have an advocate, Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, or the Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation not only for our sins, the hour 
of chapter 1, which again, there's no chapters. She's just writing a letter here, but of the world, people of every ethnicity and time period, not just the original believing Jews. Now, is there any confirmation that we could have that this is what John means? Well, the, the same writer in the Gospel of John quotes Caiaphas making this statement about Jesus, and John adds his own commentary on what Caiaphas said, and it's structured in exactly the same way as this verse. So look at John 11, verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Right, that's remarkable right there. Caiaphas is, is part of the council that condemns Jesus to death. Right? So he's the direct opposite of, of a believer. And yet, and this is saying something about the sovereignty of God, his words are declaring something that is theologically true that he's even unaware of, right? But look at verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, right? Same, same, same structure there. And, and not ours only, but also for the world. Not for the nation of Israel only, but also to gather in to one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so Jesus has died not just for ethnic Jews, but to redeem a people, as John says in Revelation, from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. All right? Uh, let me quickly do Matthew 23, verse 37, and then we'll close from there. Uh, Matthew 23, Verse 37, Jesus is saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as again as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing, right? Does this undermine irresistible grace? Because Jesus is saying, how often I would have gathered you like a hen under my wings, and yet you were unwilling. Well, what you might not have noticed is I just misquoted the passage. Because uh, although it's often quoted in that way as Jesus saying, how often I would have gathered you, but you were unwilling, that's actually not what the text says. Um, in, in context here, Jesus is denouncing the Pharisees, right? That's where he starts in, in Matthew 23, and he's he's bringing judgment upon them because of their self-righteousness and their resistance to God and his purposes. And here, their very own Messiah is standing before him, and they have rejected him. And, and so, by the way, the context, Jesus is not trying to teach us about how God works his plan of salvation. He's trying to judge uh, these people here. And so he's, he's bringing this, this word of a judgment to them. But, but, but notice, whom is Jesus seeking to gather and who are the ones that are doing the, resistant, the resisting? Well, he says, Jerusalem, and who's that? Does that mean individual Jews generally? Well, he's already described who Jerusalem is in the context. It's, it's, it's the religious leaders who killed the prophets. In context, it's the Pharisees, right? So he's referring to them as Jerusalem, the, the leadership of Jerusalem that historically, God has sent prophets to, and they have been on the front lines of opposing God's work. And here they are again doing this. And he says, how often I would have gathered your 
children. So he doesn't say you. He says your children and you were unwilling. Sometimes translations render this as but you were unwilling, like that's adversarial. I wanted to do, the, to do this, and yet you were opposing me, and therefore I didn't get to accomplish what I wanted to do. But it's, it's just the word for and there. He's saying, I wanted to gather your children, and here you are in your same resistance and hardness of heart that you have always demonstrated throughout history. And so there's a distinction between those Jesus is desiring to gather and those who are opposing them. And that's clear from verse 13 in, in, the, in the passage. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for neither you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, he's not saying that the Pharisees literally prevented people from being saved. Right, right. Not even Arminians believe that somebody can prevent someone from from being saved. Someone else. Uh, he's saying that, you know, in terms of their receptivity, the work of God, they're shutting as many doors as they can, while other people are seeking to come in, and they're saying, "Not only do I not care, but I'm going to oppose the efforts to draw in others." And so John Gill quotes uh, comments. He says, "The persons whom Christ would have gathered." are not represented as being unwilling to be gathered, but their rulers were not willing that they should. The opposition and resistance to the will of Christ were not made by the people, but by their governors. The common people seemed inclined to attend the ministry of Christ, as appears from the vast crowds, which at different times and places followed him. But the chief priests and rulers did all they could to hinder the collection of them to him and their belief in him as the Messiah by speaking against his character, miracles, and doctrines, and by passing an act that whoever confessed him should be put out of the synagogues, so that the obvious meaning of the text is the same with that of verse 13, what we just quoted. And consequently is no proof of men's resisting the operations of the Spirit and grace of God, but of obstructions and discouragements thrown in the way of attendance on the external ministry of the word. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and bring it to a close here. Um, you know, obviously, this is just to help us interpret God's word together and, um, and to see it in a way that is, that is clear and consistent. And again, if this does not resolve everything for you or every question, uh, you are normal. And uh, we want to continue to have uh, some more discussion next, next week. And, and as always, we're always available to discuss these things further. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for the gift of your word and how so much of it is so clear to us and, and Lord, so encouraging and helpful. And God, would, would you lead us to be patient students of your word? Lord, we, we don't want to assume that we can just read it casually and, and unless it's immediately accessible to us, then, then our job is done. Lord, by the Spirit, we want to do the work that you called us to because you are worth knowing and these truths are worth believing. And Lord, we, we want to experience all the encouragement and hope they are designed to accomplish in us. So Lord, please help us uh, today and next week. And, and Lord, will we go forth in joy? And as we join the rest of your people, would we celebrate you in, in our worship and be ready to listen to you again? In Jesus' name, amen.